She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Now, Stacy Washington. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. We're happy to be, uh, you know, doing some live radio right here on your uh, terrestrial radio stations and also streaming to Facebook, Periscope, and YouTube. So thanks for everyone who's in the chats on all those different areas. Uh, Great to be with you today. So we've already covered the illegal aliens who were rounded up and the bust over at that trucking concern. And we have had uh, a lot of info. I I think that that story about the guns, I just, it's kind of staggering that news media outlets use this story. They've trumpeted this across the land. Most Americans were, you know, chewing on their dinner and heard it and thought, wow, that's kind of crazy. And then that's it. The correction by NPR was probably heard on NPR, which is national. It's huge radio. They're usually in the top five for talk, usually the second or third radio station you'll find ratings wise in every major metropolitan city. And they probably covered this story once or twice and uh, gave it a little bit of time, not on television, but on their radio outlets. And then that's it. It's huge. This is a story that CNN and everyone else should cover because the safety of America's children, whether the kids are in danger or whether they're ultimately safe or somewhere in between, the truth should be the order of the day. So if you uh, actually, you know what I'll do? I'll put the link to this in the live stream and I'll also post it as a story on Facebook. You can print the story off and show it to friends and neighbors. You can tell people about it. You can share it on your Facebook. Get the word out that NPR did investigative journalism and found out that this report by the Department of Education was false. It's important for us to know the truth. So now let's talk about, um, you know, uh, Andrew Gillum. So Andrew Gillum is the individual who is running for governor. It's kind of a um, like a bellwether election because if he wins, he would be the first black governor of the state of Florida um, and he would be the highest statewide elected uh, official of color in the entire state. And that is what the Democrats are pushing. They're comparing his race there in Florida to the race for governor by Stacey Adams in Georgia. And the Democrats would love to flip Florida and Georgia from reliably red states to reliably blue states because that would help them clinch the Electoral College since they don't intend on ever going back to truly representing blue collar workers and individuals who you know live in, in uh, you know, Pennsylvania and and Wisconsin, places like that, those are not voters that they can satisfy any longer with their current agenda. So they want to flip states that have higher numbers of minorities so that they can, that that's another path to electoral college wins. It's an ingenious strategy considering what they're pushing and how it doesn't work, but it's not a done deal. So you would think if that's their strategy, they would run someone for Florida governor who presents ideas that could actually work for Floridians, ideas that are not just workable, but have shown success somewhere else 
so that he would be seen as someone who could come in and immediately take the reins of power and lead Floridians to prosperity. Instead, you have Andrew Gillum revealing his plan to raise taxes to pay for his ridiculous liberal policies. It's number six. Since you mentioned money, Mr. Mayor, you, you also ran on universal health care, lots more money for schools and especially for teachers, raising the minimum wage to $15 for, for all Floridians. Specifically, Mr. Mayor, if elected governor, how are you going to pay for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what we have proposed is an increase in the corporate tax rate, which in the state of Florida is an lower than our neighboring states where? of Alabama and Georgia. Uh, right now, we're at five and a quarter, and we've uh, suggested going up to just over seven, that which puts it. us in line with many other states. And part of what we it creates a billion dollars uh, in funding for our public education system. All right. So a couple things. Remember what we've talked about here on the show, this book called How Many Walks um, by Travis Brown. And it catalogs in excruciating detail um, how states that have low or no property tax, states that have low or no income tax are havens for families, prime aged families. So families that have kids, uh, you know, two income households, some single income households. They flock to states that have low income tax uh, or no income tax, and they flock to states that have uh, you know, no property tax or low property tax. And the reason they do that is because they make a calculation. And, and this is something that if you haven't thought about it, it really, you haven't thought about it. You know, it's like out of sight, out of mind. And with our taxes, it's really like that. It's not until you get a bill that you feel is outsized or, out, you know, they, they jack your taxes up really high. Then you're like, whoa, whoa. And then you're like, well, that means we're over the next 10 years, we're going to pay X. And then you're looking around your house. You're like, well, this house isn't worth that kind of property tax or this neighborhood isn't worth that kind of property tax or it is, but I just don't want to live here anymore. We have extra square footage here. We could move to a smaller house or we could move out of this state. Well, millions of families a year in America make that calculation. They look at their, maybe their school tuition costs. And they look around in their budget to see where they can find money to save to cover those costs or to outright pay them in cash on a yearly basis. In high tax states, what families do is they, you know, we all do this. We rank our expenses from, you know, high to low. And when you see your property tax up in the top three, the first thing that happens is you're like, oh, my goodness, in two years, that would pay for all three of the kids to go to this school. In three years, that would pay for this many years of their college tuition. Uh Uh-oh. Our property taxes are too high. Now, you might say, well, all you got to do is just vote somebody in who wants lower property taxes. Well, once the property taxes get that high, any person who runs on lowering them has to run against every government employee in the area because all the government employees want to keep the taxes high because that's what pays their salary. They also are looking at people who can afford to pay them, who really feel like it's kind of an obligation. It's a badge of honor to sit around at cocktail parties and say, yeah, my property taxes are, you know, I pay $30 a year, but it's nothing to me. You know, I've, I've actually been somewhere and heard someone say that. There's a, a group of guys sitting in, and they were talking about how high their property taxes were and patting each other on the back. And I was thinking, oh, that's ludicrous. And the, for the area they live in, they pay more in property tax to live there. It's their prerogative. But if you live in a place that's like that, it's not the easiest thing. You're wasting years of your kid's childhood trying to get people elected who will lower the tax rate when you could just find a place where you could work and earn a living and buy a home and put your kids in school, private or otherwise, where the property taxes are not as high. 
And so he shows in the book how you literally can watch migration patterns. A state decides they no longer want to have an income tax or they cut their income tax by a significant amount. Population flows into that state. It's that simple. It, it's literally a magnet. I don't know if it's subliminal or if people are constantly measuring these things. It hadn't occurred to me until I read the book. I, I know we didn't want to pay high property tax and we definitely looked at the number on the property tax line on every house we considered before we, every time we purchase a home, we do that. And we ended up in Missouri in the Midwest years ago for work and have stayed here because the cost of living is great and it's a great place to raise a family. But it's definitely, if the property taxes were to go through the roof or the income tax specifically, we would be out of here so quick it wouldn't even be funny. And there's also the fact that our legislature just passed earlier this year when we were going through all the scandals with our governor, they'd also just passed legislation at the end of the session lowering our property ta- or our income tax in the state. And it's the first such tax cut that we've had in this, in this state for decades, decades. Really, it's a game changer. And so my hope is that we'll see an influx in population here in the state of Missouri and that that will be good for business prospects and for overall the population growing. It's good for, for the, the metropolitan areas here. But it's not, it's not a secret. This happens. People follow the low tax areas. They flow into them. It's like low tax almost represents a kind of depression in a landmass and water flows to the low parts. That's how people move as well. Now, here's something interesting. Turn your eyes northward to New York from Florida, where you have Andrew Gillum talking about raising taxes to pay for these ridiculous things he thinks everybody needs, the government to provide. Well, you've got Cynthia Nixon. Now, remember her from that movie uh, and also the long-running television series that completely obliterated women's... um, like women's decorum in America, really terrible impact on our culture that that show had. And so here she is. She's running for governor. She's completely unprepared. She absolutely has no business running for governor. Just because she's famous and people know who she is doesn't mean she should be the governor of New York. She doesn't believe that high taxes drive out corporations or rich people. She and, And I've just explained to you how it's not just rich people who leave high tax areas. Middle class people do it. They're, they're the primary people who do it. But rich folks, so if you're rich, you can afford to have a house in, in more than one place and live in one home as your primary residence and have your income taxes paid there. So wealthy people all the time make the decision to have their primary residence in a place that has low income taxes. And then they, their other residences, they pay property taxes on them, but they're, that's not where they pay their income tax. So she doesn't believe that, you know, the price of tea in China is what it is or that or the sky is blue or that, you know, there, that there's proven uh, tax policy in this country. Here she is talking about that in number two. Uh, Cynthia Nixon, uh, you, you talk about, and I'm glad that you're very frank about it, you want to tax millionaires and billionaires and that's all well and good and, and uh, corporate tax, but uh, New York is not its own nation state. Uh, the companies and millionaires and billionaires can choose to leave to go to other, other tax, more tax-friendly states like Florida, like Texas. And if you were successful in imposing a millionaire's tax or a corporate tax, what, what makes you think those companies would, and those wealthy people would stay in New York? So I think that wealthy individuals have the liberty of choosing where they want to live. 
And if high taxes were the thing that were going to make wealthy people move, we wouldn't have so many wealthy people in New York. We wouldn't have so many wealthy people in California. But when you talk about businesses, about being a business-friendly environment, uh, one of the main things that businesses care about is having an educated workforce. And in order to do that, yeah. we really need to invest in education. The other thing that businesses really care about is infrastructure. And we've so divested, not only from our New York City subway, but from our from our roads and our transportation in general. If we want to create jobs for New Yorkers, uh, investing yeah. in infrastructure is the most effective way to do it. And it's a way to prepare our state for the future and make it more business friendly. So there's two separate things that are an issue here. First of all, it is a part of what the state is mandated to do to maintain roads and bridges and et cetera. That is not done to create jobs. It is done to make sure that the populace has safe bridges and roads to drive on. The fact that maintenance on those, on those structures can create jobs does not in and of itself give governors the mandate to do infrastructure improvements for job creation. Job creation is the purview of the private sector. When you have politicians who primarily want to run on creating jobs instead of running on getting government out of the way so the private sector can create jobs, you get into this dichotomy where she finds herself arguing against the facts. The fact is, Wealthy people in New York are already selling their homes because of the income tax thing that was a part of the tax reform bill that was signed in December of last year. Not just the income tax, but the cap, the SALT deduction cap. So you're, you have your income tax that you pay in your state. You used to be able to deduct all of that. Now you can only deduct up to a certain number depending on your income, and you can't deduct all of your property tax. You can only deduct some up to a cap. People are already adjusting and moving to states where that is not a problem. So she already, she's going into this job theoretically on a knowledge base that is based not on facts. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's not kind of, it's absolutely ridiculous. She's unprepared. She's not ready for prime time. All right. When we get back, we're going to be talking about uh, China and the national security policy with our trade that we've been operating under. And we'll take your calls if you'd like, 866-963-2037. Stay there. Meet Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. Jill came into our center about eight months ago, and uh, she was in a really difficult spot because her husband had, or um, I'm sorry, her boyfriend was incarcerated. She didn't have a place to live. She's out on the street. She came into our center, and uh, when she saw her baby on the ultrasound, she says, I've got to find a way to do this. She changed from abortion-minded to wanting to choose life for her baby, and that's where we came in, coming beside that ultrasound with baby clothes, with housing for her. Her baby just delivered last Wednesday. It's a little boy. He's beautiful. That's the power of ultrasound. 80% of women choose life when they see their baby on ultrasound. To find out more about how you can help save a baby's life, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say keyword baby. 
That's pound 250 and say, baby. All gifts are tax deductible. Your love can save a life. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. In a recent commentary, I mentioned that many radio listeners object to the fact that Social Security is considered an entitlement. After all, they argue, they paid into Social Security and Medicare. Now they are receiving a partial refund of money they paid into the system. And while that is true for some people, it is not true for many others. Let's look at the numbers. A credible analysis was done a few years ago by the Urban Institute. Their researchers figured out what people turning 65 in various years have already paid into the system. And then they calculated what they can expect to take out after they reach age 65. And of course, the actual numbers will vary based upon family income, marital status, and longevity. In most cases, retiring Americans will receive much more from Social Security and Medicare than they put into the system. Whenever I mention this on radio, callers are shocked to hear that and often don't believe it. Here are some of the numbers from the Urban Institute. A two-earner couple receiving an average wage would have paid $722,000 into Social Security and Medicare. They could be expected to take out $966,000 in benefits. In other words, they would be paid about one-third more in benefits than they paid in taxes. A one-income earner couple earning an average wage will pay about $361,000 into Social Security and Medicare and receive about $840,000 in benefits. That's almost two and a half times more in benefits than they paid in taxes. The conclusion is clear. In most cases, Americans who retire will receive more from Social Security and Medicare combined than they put into the system. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. 1990s to Obama era. America's China policy has been heavily influenced by American international corporations. Now, finally, we start to see the long-term impact of this policy, a model in which a profit-driven business sector dominates public policy has brought great damage to this country. What do you think is wrong with this model, and uh, will it happen again? Yeah, my view, you know, I've been sounding the alarm on what I call the China threat uh, for many years, uh, going back to the 1980s and uh, with my uh, 2000 book, The China Threat. And uh, I've argued uh, since the beginning that the fundamental approach to China has been mistaken. And that approach has been uh, partly that if the United States trades with China, that this trade and business interaction will have a moderating influence and ultimately result in the evolution of China from a communist state to a democratic state. And that that assumption has been the underpinnings of American policy uh, for more than 30 years, uh, going back to the 80s. And it's proven to be fundamentally false. Uh, We have not seen a moderating of China. We have not seen a evolution towards a democratic system. In fact, we've seen just the opposite. Uh, this is uh, the uh, uh, 
what they say, uh, often say about second marriage is that it's the uh, triumph of hope over experience. You can't build uh, a national security policy based on hope, and that was what they did in hoping that uh, trading with China would bring about a, a more peaceful uh, and a more uh, democratic, more open uh, uh, China. Mm. I couldn't have said it better myself. So uh, that was Gertz of Washington Free Beacon. And he was talking about the, the idea that in the beginning, Americans really went into trading with China uh, with this this hope that they would see, look at what capitalism has brought. Look at what look at what America's able to do. Um, we trade with them. They have some of our goods. Look at what they're able to do. And we should be a little more open to uh, some some capitalism. In other words, not to change them completely from from their form of government, but to introduce some elements of our own. Instead, what's happened is the Chinese government has taken to stealing from us, stealing our intellectual property, stealing our citizenship by shipping their pregnant women over here on birthright vacations and they have their babies and then they bring their kids back to get their educations in our universities. And they've embedded people in our universities, in our technology sector to steal not just the intellectual property of developments that have been made that are now products, but the seeds of those developments, these tech startups are now being funded by Chinese government front uh, organizations. And what they do is they just, in order for them to give the venture capital funding that's requested, they simply require access to all of the information from day one. Now, most venture capital funding is based upon a presentation of a business plan and, and ideas prototypes are shared but the actual intellectual property the the nugget of the idea that makes it work is reserved for the individuals who are actually the creators the venture capital firms get enough information to secure what it is that they're funding and they put the money in they have ownership and they have all of these um, assurances con contractual assurances that once the product is brought is deliverable and and brought to market that they will share in the the benefits like the the sales they get percentages of the sales they have ownership in the company they have you know a beneficial arrangements for how the stock is arranged around them and and positions on the the board of directors so that they have control but the actual intellectual property remains titled and the property of the original creators unless they're willing to sell that afterwards well, what the Chinese do when they come in to get this, you know, they'll provide venture capital funding, which comes directly from the Chinese government, is they'll say, yeah, but we need access to the actual idea. Well, that's not what we normally do. And they're like, yeah, but you need this venture capital funding. We want to know how you came up with it. We want to see your original notes on how it was. How, where, where were you when you thought it up? What were you doing? What did you write down? Not just your notes, but who did you talk to? Who else was instrumental in helping you to formulate this idea? Show us everything. And some of these tech startups are doing that because they want the money. Because the Chinese are offering way more than what American venture capital funders are offering. Because the Chinese don't really want, they're, they're not interested in bringing it to market here in the United States. They want the idea so they can use it at home in their country and sell it in the Asian markets. And so it's one thing if, if we just found this out today, like if this was breaking news today, that'd be one thing. But we've known this for 20, 30 years since we started putting a lot of our manufacturing in China. 
since we changed our relationship from simple trade of already created goods to us putting factories there, they, they are, they marvel. And I learned this, uh, when I was on school board and before that I would attend briefings in our school district and they would have people who are teachers or they're working on their PhD program and they would travel to China as a part of the research for their thesis. And while they were in China, they would talk to educators there and they would ask the Chinese people, you know, how do you show us how you teach math, show us how you teach technology and, 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 and that type of stuff, engineering, um, the hard sciences. And the Chinese teachers would say, talk to us about creativity. How do you spur creativity in your, in your children? Talk to us about what you do with the gifted children. How do you identify them? Once you've identified them, what do you do with them? What kind of, uh, technology do you use? Are you rigid with them? Are they on a program where they do certain only are only allowed to do certain types of study? Are they directed into certain fields because of their intelligence? And every one of these people who's been to these presentations, I remember sitting in on a, um, on a panel that covered this topic at a Missouri School Board Association um, training session that I had to attend in order to be certified as a board member. And they talked the same thing. The Chinese always ask about the creative side of the American educational system and what are we doing with the kids? Now, what Chinese people don't understand is that creativity is nurtured in the classroom, but it begins in the home with parents who talk to their kids, who take them to museums and educational excursions, who read to them, who, you know, it's, it's not about kids watching television and seeing the end product of creativity. It's about kids being exposed to the outside world, to nature, going to zoos, going to parks, being left alone to play and splash around in the mud and do things like that. And on every one of these interactions, the American teachers were astounded by how little Chinese teachers understand about nurturing creativity. They don't have a capitalistic society. And because they have a command and control concept society, which is communistic, that communist control means that if so in order to be creative in one area you're you're creative in all areas if you know a person who's creative they they cr- think creatively that is the way they think it's not that they turn on their creativity when they're painting or or creating music or or engineering something they're creative in their thought processes all of the time and so they are often the person who will pipe up with an idea or a response to a question that pretty much no one else in the room would have that it's a type of thinking that creative people engage in and it's the way they think all the time this is something that the chinese are trying to understand so that they can replicate that in their children they want to nurture that in their children because they're tired of seeing products like the iphone and other things that were created here in america created here in america they want to see their children creating those things and they do have creative people and they do have but but not to the same degree that we do and so it's just interesting that we know all of that, yet we still put our manufacturing plants in their country because it's cheaper, really bowing down to that dollar. And it is important for us to have well-made goods that are affordably priced for Americans to buy, but not to the degree that we currently have it. No one needs 1999 shirts. No one needs 40 pairs of you know $20 tennis shoes. We do that so that we can have an overabundance of items to sell But in exchange for that, we're giving away our intellectual property. 
And that should be something that every president would have been concerned with and worked to put a stop to. But we haven't seen that until President Trump. And it's one of the reasons why you see the hatred of him at the degree that it's at, because he's literally it's not an upsetting of the apple cart. He's taking the entire train, the freight train of double stacked goods that is headed to China. And he's standing in front of it with a stop sign and a couple of tanks. And he's like, we're not doing this anymore. And everyone who's benefiting from this, the wholesale, just it's like a fire sale of American creativity. Everyone who's benefiting from that is like, uh-uh, I'm, I'm not ready to stop making this money. And he's like, this is not about money. It's about protecting what makes America great. And so, you know, this is, this is where we are. It's important. It's something that I want to see the president follow through on, also the wall. And I hope that he will. I hope that he's, he's not prevented from doing that. Um, so there was something else. Someone made a comment um, on the YouTube live stream. Uh, so I, I'm getting to it right here. Um, oh, talking about Stacey Abrams. I mentioned Stacey Abrams a couple minutes ago talking about her, uh, you know, it's this groundbreaking race. A black woman would be the mayor of Georgia. Stacey Abrams wants the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to go to individual homes confiscating all the guns and gun paraphernalia. She's a gun grabbing nut in Georgia. I mean, Georgia is a a huge gun owning state. Doesn't make her prospects that that good. Um, It doesn't look that good for her. So. Another comment, um, Lloyd Braun is in the, in the comments over here, and he says, I wonder how much creativity has been affected with many schools doing away with recess and more kids staying inside playing video games, not having adventures with their friends. I think it's hugely effect, uh, impactful. I think a lot of our kids are, uh, you know, they don't know what they're missing. And there is a lot of fun to be had playing video games. I'm not, you know, my, our family, we're not... Uh, hermits you know we have video gaming systems here our kids do that kind of stuff um i played with a game boy and a nintendo 64 when i was a kid so it's not like i'm against it completely but there's that time spent outside that kids need and as a parent you kind of have to say it makes you the bad guy but if you think parenting is about being your kid's friend or being the good guy uh, you know, God bless you. I'm not sure where, where you've been parenting so far, but parenting is really about making those decisions that later on when your kids are adults and maybe even not until they have their own kids, they're like, oh, wow, I appreciate that. Um, or maybe they never tell you. They just appreciate it silently. Or maybe they never appreciate it. But it, it, it's not about the appreciation. It's about doing what's right for the kid. You have to say, look, this is how many hours a day you're allowed to play with that you know, that Nintendo, this, this is how many minutes a day you're allowed to do X. And then after that, you need to put it down and do something else. And whether it's reading books or, or like Lloyd has mentioned, going outside and having adventures. Cause I remember doing that, um, in, in Germany where I grew up. And then I also remember doing it when we would come to the United States. Uh, there were a few summers where my sister and I came to the States and stayed with our grandparents. And we would split the summer between my mom's parents and my dad's parents who did, they lived in different parts of, of this very small, rural, like two country towns. And so we would split between those two. And she and I would get up in the morning and we put on our shorts and t-shirt and have breakfast. And you know, at at our country grandma's house, breakfast was like all this bacon and sausage and eggs and, and biscuits. And we would be so stuffed 
Then we would go outside and we'd run around her yard. She had a farm. So we'd run around there for a while. And then we'd come back in and get some water. And then we'd go back out and pick blackberries off the blackberry bush and prick our fingers and go back inside, wash our hands and put band-aids on. And then we would go running down the lane and we would just go as far as our legs would carry us or until the bugs got too loud. Cause you know, out in the country, the bugs are really loud and we would be gone for hours and we would come back and we'd be all scratched up and sweaty. And she'd say, Oh, go wash yourselves off. So we'd go in the bathroom, wash our hands and our arms and our faces and then come back and she'd make what would be technically lunch And then we would lay around and, you know, hot. It's ridiculously hot. We'd try to watch TV, but she didn't have cable. And so then we would go back outside for some more hours and run around, do cartwheels in the yard, get bitten by some more bugs and play around with. At one point, she had a couple of goats still because she by then she was she was older. And then we would come in for dinner and we would do that for weeks on end. In the summertime, we had all these games we would play where we were superheroes. We were, I mean, I can't even, it was just a crazy amount of time we spent outside because there was nothing to do inside and there weren't, there wasn't anything to watch on TV. And I think it really, really helped our development. And and we weren't the only ones doing it. We just were so far away from the neighbor kids because it was, she had a farm and, and it had some acres to it. And so we don't get a lot of that for kids nowadays unless we intentionally plan that out for them. Most of their, they're going on a play date. They just don't go knock on their friend's house door anymore. It's like, oh, you got to have a play date. The parents have to arrange it. It has to be a start time and a finish time. The parents have to plan out a snack. I mean, we're, we're getting away from that. And that, to me, is just as dangerous as what we're doing with the Chinese and allowing them to take our intellectual property. And so for... Parents who are, you know, getting getting the thing done now and you have the smaller kids, it's as simple as just saying, you know, you need some time outside. There's a swing set out there, but there's also some toys out there. And then there's just the outside itself. Go out there and have a good time. And at first they're going to say, oh, if they're not used to doing it, well, what am I supposed to do? I, What am I? Send them out there for a while and they will find stuff to do because they're kids and they need that time. The Chinese would give anything to have the opportunity that we have to control our kids' environments and to expose them to anything we want, but they don't because they have a communist country. So we got to remember that and be grateful for what we have and use it. Use it or lose it. You know what I'm saying? All right. When we get back, we're going to be speaking with Mason Weaver, author and political pundit, about this whole monkey it up controversy. Stay there. Take to live an uncommon life. Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. When my co-author Nathan Whitaker was nine, he went skiing with his parents in Colorado. All along the slope, signs were posted with the warning, Beware of Snowcats. After three days of skiing, Nathan said, Daddy, have you seen one yet? Seen what, Nathan? A snowcat. Smiling, his dad explained that the signs were referring to snowplow-like machines not a wild cat. Nathan was relieved. 
But despite believing that at any given moment a snow leopard could leap out from anywhere on the slopes, Nathan never stopped skiing. Instead, he pointed his skis straighter to be ready to outrun the danger. No matter what you face in life, just keep on skiing. New York Times best-selling author Tony Dungy. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. Hurricane Harvey was the second worst disaster ever seen on American soil. Eight Days of Hope responded to that need in Houston, Texas, back in March, where 4,700 volunteers came from all over the world and all 50 states to love and serve people in need. When we left, we realized that there was still much more to do. So many people still were hurting, hundreds of thousands of families looking for somebody, anybody to help them. Here's your chance. Eight Days of Hope 16 will be back in Southeast Houston, October 13th through October 20th. It's free. We provide the food and lodging. We're looking for skilled professionals, people who are semi-skilled, and people with no skills or less skilled and want to give back. For more information, you go to our website, 8daysofhope.com. We're expecting about 2,500 volunteers from all over America to go back to Houston to love and serve those in need. Hope to see you in Houston, 8daysofhope.com. For more information, 8daysofhope.com. Military Matters. Their numbers are rapidly dwindling. Of the 16 million Americans who served in the armed forces during World War II, only about half a million are still alive. One of them is William Gilbert, a Navy man who served on the USS Indiana in the Pacific. Gilbert is 94 years old, living with his son in Louisville, Kentucky. One day he mentioned to staffers at the local VA Medical Center that he's been waiting more than 70 years for the military medals owed to him. Last week, the wait ended. In a ceremony at the medical center, Gilbert received his medals. Thank you most of all, Mr. Gilbert, for your faithful service to this nation. Four in all, including the Silver Star and the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal. Now I didn't know it was going to take all of this to go through all of this for me to get it. But so helping, it helping. I live long enough to have this. An overdue but great honor for a member of the greatest generation. I'm lucky, awful lucky. With Military Matters, Anna Eliopoulos, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, welcome back to the show. At Stacy on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us at urbanfamilytalk.com and afr.net. You can find the podcast there. You can share. Uh, we really appreciate you. Um, okay, so let's now speak to our guest. And so he was on last week, back by popular demand. I got so many comments from people who are like, you know what? Thank you for having Mason Weaver on, and please have him back again. And this next subject that we're going to cover, and we've touched on a little bit, but not not to the degree that I believe Mason's going to help us get through this. Uh, you know, it's sometimes that you want someone who's a straight talker and a truth teller to kind of break a topic down for you. And that's what we're going to get from Mason. So Mason Weaver, author, political pundit. Mason, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, always. My pleasure. All right. So let's let's talk about this. People have gotten all up in their feelings because <laughs> this guy. <laughs> so so he was my he, he, the guy. Well, you put things up, hey, up in their feelings. <laughs> they're up in their feelings, and I'm only saying that because I I just happened to be on Twitter, Mason. You know you know this because I'm I'm a mom, and so I'm not 
immediately plugged in. I don't listen to the, 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 the new music. You know, I'm just I'm just not there. And I'm not supposed to be there. I'm, I'm a mom of teenagers. Right. They're supposed to be there. So I saw the video of uh, it was Will Smith and he was doing the up in your feelings challenge or the feelings challenge. And he's in Bangladesh on some bridge and he's doing this choreographed dance. And so I had to find out why he was doing that. So I, you know, scroll down on Twitter watched a few of the videos and I realized, oh, it's a song by some guy that people have made a choreographed dance to that now Will Smith has owned Twitter by doing. So I felt so up to the minute by knowing that, but I've since lost my place and I'm back into not yeah. knowing enough. But you I do know cool enough to mom, say, I know, but you hey, know, you're still a mom. I'm still a mom. And so <laughs> it's as cool as I may want to be, I can't keep up with it all. So I, I do my best, but I have to say, I really thought to myself, as soon as I heard the comment, I was like, well, I probably wouldn't have said that. And I, I heard it from mainstream media. So I thought he said, you don't want to monkey it up by voting for Andrew Gillum. And I thought, wow, that's unfortunate because that's, that's not going to you know, play well in the media. Well, then I did some research and found out that he didn't say you don't want to monkey it up by voting for Gillum. He said you don't want to monkey it up by, by put, putting someone in place who's a socialist, who has all of, of these course. ideas. So it's, it has nothing to do with Gillum. But- and his his ethnic background but had everything to do matter. with his policies. Even if well, it was, sure. <laughs> even if he said Gillum is a monkey, it it doesn't matter. The Democrats do not wish to campaign on their issues. They do not want to campaign on how to pay for this trillion dollar uh, free giveaway stuff. They do not want to campaign on how they're going to reverse Trump's success. They do not want to campaign on how they're going to destroy ISIS and open our borders up. They rather chase ghosts. So, to your audience, I have heard from, from very knowledgeable sources. I have inside information. I want you all to take a deep breath. One, <laughs> two, three, in and out and relax. I have on, on authority, not one Republican in Florida has heard that and said, oh, man, that man said monkey. I'm going to vote for a Democrat now. Not one vote is going to change. What they're going to do is get us to argue with these make-believe fake emotions. Mm-hmm. Monkey. Barack called, said the same thing. Matter of fact, the same, he said the, the same thing. Thank same you. Thing. I was going to bring it up, but you got it. Go. Just, just tell the people what well, Barack Obama said. <laughs> doing a campaign in the same instance, the same, the same content. He said, somebody asked him about making sure the election is going to be fair and they're not going to steal the election, the same democratic fear. He said, monkeying around the campaign. We're going to stop them from monkeying around the campaign. He used the same phrase. I guess they were, he was just talking from his black side, not his white <laughs> half. But it didn't make any difference. What? what? I'm <laughs> sorry, but it's true. Ghosts. It doesn't matter. No it doesn't matter. Republican, there and, is nobody and- on the fence. I want to I want to point because you 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 said it's not going to change votes and I don't I don't really think it is and and I'm I'm actually surprised because I thought it would be like a bigger deal but don't you feel Mason that as as time goes on and every little thing that's said has to be this big emotional look at these racists that they actually got less traction out of this than they would have a few years ago because this is all they talk about. And, and everyone's kind of like, ah, oh, this is a nothing burger. The dude does not appear to be a legitimate racist. He didn't you know, say the it, guy. He said they, the policies. They can only, only have an end calling, folks. 
What if we're just ignored? We have to ignore stupid stuff. I mean, if, if I say it to you, Stacey Washington, admit to your audience that you are five foot two, two hundred eighty pound man. You know you really are. You're faking it. How long would you argue with me on that? How long would you debate that? You would say motion is crazy and move on to the next subject. But we yeah. sit and let Democrats say the most insane things. We do. Of, of doing what they're doing, and we spend all our time debating, trying to convince them that we're not mean, that we're not mean, we're not hateful, we're not tolerant. I don't care what a Democrat call me. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I want my taxes lowered, mm-hmm. want my border closed, I want my income to be, I want my kids to make enough money to move out of my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm the same way. I mean, I love our children, and I there's a part of me, a very tiny part, that wants them to live with us forever because I'm their mom. But the reality is the older they get, the more they need to be out of this house. Oh, and yes. for me to prepare them and, and for me to have the opportunity or not really me, for them to have the opportunity to be in an economy where all they have to do is have their skills and their, their job history um, or their ability to show up and you know do a job, just have that right. And then there's all this opportunity out there. I consider it a blessing from God. I'm, I'm excited. I'm hoping that the economy lasts so that when they're done with their schooling, they can hit the road running and just say, look. You know, I, mom, I got offers from here, here, and here. I get to choose. And then I'll be there like, well, this is awesome. You know, what do you think you're going to do? What do you plan to do? As opposed to the Barack Obama economy where kids were boomeranging back home. They graduate from high school and then go to college, get a degree in African-American studies or women's studies or, you know, illegal immigrant studies and then basket come back weaving. home. <laughs> yeah, basket weaving, come back home, live in the basement, the, the fully finished walkout basement, but still they're in the basement and they're down there just living, just like for years and years and years. They're 30, they're 34. Yeah. It's to live on you. My youngest yeah. asked me, will I miss her when she moves out? I said, yes. When will I be able to miss you? <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to miss you. I can't wait to come to your house and tear your house up. I cannot yeah. wait. Yeah, I, I want you to, to cook for me. I yeah, I want you to cook for me. I want you to. Our daughter used to, to say she was going to take me to the store. She was three. Her big deal was one day she'd be old enough to drive me to the store. And I was like, but will I be able to drive? Because or will I need you to take me to the store? Like I was yeah. trying to figure out why she needed me. That, that, like why she needed to take me. But her big deal was she wanted to be an adult who could drive her own car and take me somewhere. And so I, I still want them to have that attitude. And, and it's not just you and I, like we're not some anomaly. All parents want to see Every their parent. kids launch, right? You want them to do that. And so it's just funny that, so everything I see from the liberals is meant to turn off the critical thinking centers, turn off the ability for people to decipher the truth from a lie and turn all of these big grown people back into children. So they have to stay home. Don't forget, though, liberals are it's a philosophy of slavery. It's the philosophy of feudalism and serfdom. They believe they are superior to you, but kind and nice. So being superior to you. They're obligated to take care of your dumb self. They have to treat you and clothe you. And, and it, it's the liberal's burden, like the white man's burden of the past. It's the liberal's burden, the same <laughs> philosophy. They really resent you thinking you're as smart as they are. And, I, and so I've, they I've have met up to with put it. a burden on it's, it's a It's a very stressful, very abusive belief system. And that's why that, those folks in Florida and across the country cannot debate you on what they really believe. They want to tax you to take care of you. you. You are a slave. You pick their cotton and they give you a place to stay. That's their philosophy. Well, and so Mason, 
I've met up with that before because I've had um, white liberals on Twitter and I've had black liberals on Facebook. I've had on, on numerous occasions over the, the years that I've been doing this where it's been social media. I've had people say even to my face, well, what you're saying is that you don't want anyone to control what you can do. Yeah, and that yeah. just doesn't work. I've, yeah. I've had people tell me that. I'm like, yeah. well, wait a minute. I'm not talking about breaking the law. I'm just talking about not giving so much of my taxes. The government has to take those taxes so they can give it to people who need it. If we give it to you, you'll keep it for yourself. I had yeah. a lady tell me that. I was they, like, but I have kids. Corporations. <laughs> they think corporations have yeah. to tax if they won't take it. They think corporations don't provide anything but uh, tax advantages. Mm-hmm. They, they hate success. They, and they, they hate you controlling any, yourself. Any and they hate you controlling your kids. I remember being on committees in, in the school district and someone would invariably say, well, we have to embed this in the curriculum because there are parents who won't like this. And yeah. I would say, well, wait a minute. How can, we, how can we work within that? Because if parents have concerns about this, we don't want to go against the parents. And I, I would have people tell me, look, this isn't about accommodating the parents. It's about teaching their kids things that we know exactly. they need to know. They believe it. And you're wasting our time with that. What we need to do is make sure we can get this embedded in the curriculum so parents who try to opt out of it can't escape it because it's in the curriculum. I'm like, they wow. really believe it. Yeah. And that, yeah. that will satisfy our, our frustration. We get frustrated because we think the truth will change their minds. And, and honestly, they know the truth. They really know that Trump is succeeding. They know that lowering taxes brings more income. They know that. They know what success is. They deny the truth, knowing it is true, and they accept the lie, knowing it is a lie. They want the lie, folks. So let's... let's... We'll, we'll put this thing to bed and move on to the next subject. I have a couple things I want to talk to you about beyond this, this subject. But there's, there's just one other thing. And I'm seeing some conservatives, some, you know, just these are, these are regular people. There's nothing wrong with them. It, they just, they want DeSantis, the, the, the candidate, to make a full apology for what he said because it's insensitive so that they can put it behind him. You know, in other words, to kind of close the door on it. I and I actually gave that some thought. I was like, "Well, could that work?" But well, don't Democrats? Work. No, it won't work. Yeah, because sure, won't so the nice. Democrats take that so as weakness? Yeah, he, <laughs> so they they won't take it. Will they, Mason? They won't accept they his apology. They know it's not going to work. Yeah, they, they want the issue. They don't want the apology. They know the guy is not like I told you before. They know the truth. They know he's not a racist. They know the truth. They deny the truth and they accept the lie because the issue of racism keeps you from talking about the high taxes, the abusive regulations they want to put on you, and the reverse of, ta- of Trump's success. They want failure. They can only succeed if America fails. I'm not apologizing. Why, why would they apologize? He didn't fault anybody. Who did he insult? He didn't. He, he was talking about the policies, which don't have feelings because the policies are not alive. He, the, that's what the, he was talking about. He made, he made a monkey comment? Well, what policies? Yeah, well, no, he was saying don't monkey it up by voting oh, yeah. for these policies. That was, and, and the, the way, policies don't have feelings. Has anybody ever seen a shaved monkey? What color is that monkey? Oh. White. Well, yeah. yeah, for a second I'm like, what? No. It's a white, <laughs> monkey is white. It has got black hair. Gee, where's the... <laughs> so, so there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to this, but there's nothing to it. Yeah, nothing it's to just it. one of those things. It's, it, it, it sounds like there's a lot to it, but there's nothing. Who's going to say, gee, I was going to vote Republican? They're, they're, these candidates are so far apart. 
is so far apart in their policies that the fence, the fence has to be a very, very painful place to be. If you're on the fence on this election, on this campaign, that fence can be very painful for you because it's very, very thin. There is nothing that anybody should be on the fence about. It's a clear choice. Do you want slavery or do you want freedom? Do you want taxes or do you want your money in your pocket? It's really a clear choice. So now let's pivot over to, and I, I covered this a little bit in the first segment, but you, this, this is right up our alley. Um, and this is the Second Amendment. And this whole idea that there have been these just 235 school shootings in the 2015 to 2016 school year. That was the number issued by the Department of Education in their report earlier this year. And Democrats have been using that number to press for gun control. Well, NPR, I know, sit, if you're not seated, please hold on to something. NPR did an investigative report on this number to figure out what was going on and found that the true number is 11 for that school year. Wow. 20, 2015 to 2016, 11, not 235. Wow. What are the, so first of all, of course, NPR covered this on their radio shows and stuff. So it's not, it's not a secret, but how do we use this to debunk? I, I'm not trying to convince any liberals, but I want other people who aren't liberals who are being convinced that there's this huge danger going on to understand that it's not to the degree that, that, that has been reported to hey, them because they haven't first, corrected hey. themselves. If it, if it is a big danger in your schools, if your child is in danger of being shot at your school, why are you sending your kid to school? Uh-oh. It seems to me that school is a very dangerous place. They're not learning anything and not getting shot to. But we have to look at this in, in, in a rational term, folks. Everyone knows that they want gun control. And they use every avenue to gain the sympathy of the people. But it's not working. Nothing working. It's it's no one is demanding no, no populist uproar is demanding gun control. They're losing because people know that that you're safer with a gun in your pocket than the cop down the street. And it's clear at the, the bell. And all they want to do once again, Democrats want to control your life. They think they have to control you because they think they're superior to you. Well, so, uh, you got and, to and close the way, show out. Question, how you get this stuff out on these? On the, on the Stacey program. It's a right. That's how you get out. All right. Well, it's out. Thank you, Mason. Talk to you again next week. God bless everybody. Have a great night. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association. Urban Family Urban Family Talk.